I'd like some legal representation, but these police officers have not allowed me to, to have any. I uh, I don't know what this is all about. Kill the president. Sir? I work in that building. Were you in the building at the time? Naturally, if I work in that building, yes, sir. Back up, man. Did you shoot the president? No, they're taking me in because of the fact that I live in Missouri. I'm just a Yeah, I know. And yeah. here's right. what you say. You read from this card and then yeah. you shoot him. <laughs> you killed my president, you rat bastard. And all the cops are like, no. <laughs> oh, boy. Mm. Oh, man. I am. I am. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be sounding delirious today, Dan, just because I had my second vaccination today and mm. I am just a bit delirious or just because of the subject matter. But mm. This is going to be one for the books or also just because this is going to be ostensibly we're kind of trying to record two episodes in one sitting. Yeah. And that might, a bit of a slog. <laughs> that might be a little, <laughs> a little delirium inducing, but you know, what are you going to do? We'll, we'll find out. We'll find out. Um, <sighs> what did I say? Don't get your job and then drink beer. <laughs> Cheers. Dan's always saying that. Yeah. Oh, well, what are you going to do? This uh, is sponsored by Northern Monk. Yeah, oh, that's very nice. Mm. A delicious hazy pale ale. Yeah, in it. Which I'm going to sup at <laughs> um, very gradually because <laughs> my um, my podcasting faculties are easily compromised. <laughs> um, and uh, the story we have to tell today oh, is um, compromising of one's sanity enough. <laughs> it is. Yeah. This one's been a long time coming, Dan. I know. This one... I don't remember exactly when I lent you this book, but I was... It's been a while. It's been a Basically while. Basically, the entirety of the time that we spent doing this podcast. Yeah. Because you read this last summer, right? And then yes. When I was back came, home. Yeah, yeah, you came back and you gave me the book. The book. And it took me a little while to get around to reading it. Mm. And um, I was promised it would, I don't know, blow my mind. Because <laughs> I'd, I'd never really known anything about this. I was always like... T- I was always like... I mean, come on, Oswald, did he do it? But I was always just kind of like, I don't really care. They're, like, if the story is more interesting than that, I kind of don't really care. And then I read this because ostensibly I just wanted to know all about uh, um, the, like, CIA and, you know, I am, Third World. I imagine and... you, like, innocently buying a <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Innocently buying a book about the CIA and its sort of duplicitous <laughs> activities in, around the world. And then Innocent, getting to this like... point where it sort of, like... <laughs> Sort of gradually starts to there's these little subtle hints yeah. thrown in. Yeah, Alan Dulles might be the man on the grassy knoll. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, implicated. Well, well, implicated in the crime of the century, but yeah, implicated in uh, in coup plots domestic as well as foreign. Yeah, yeah. I, I, do we need to do we need to frame this at all before we start? Because I mean, like, I feel like a, down the line as this. Uh, episode unfurls we'll probably have a uh discussion about conspiracy theories and what that means to the left and all of that but i mean it's kind of a crazy story isn't it yeah it's just like insane <laughs> so yeah. I don't know what else to say. it's just nuts yeah 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 
I mean, like a, a little while ago, I watched um, Oliver Stone's JFK. Yeah, I still haven't seen and that. And then I was like, basically couldn't sleep for 48 hours. <laughs> um, and it's funny how these things captivate people, right? But this is the the, the classic conspiracy theory mm. that inspires like people to go to the internet and do... Yeah. do yes. Independent <laughs> research. <laughs> yes, that's what I was about to say, to become independent researchers. <laughs> and I feel like I feel like the persona of the independent researcher mm. has like fallen into like mucky territory oh, yeah. of late. It's oh, become yeah. a little bit tarred by yeah, cute. Um, so, yeah, like yeah, 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 the yeah. Epstein stuff. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. But um, <laughs> it has a noble lineage, I think. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. The early pioneers of the late 1960s who decided to turn their gaze upon this infamous murder where nobody else was looking, yeah. nobody else was asking the questions. Yeah. Everybody, everybody was had a puppet string attached from them to Alan Dulles somehow. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, this they make the point in this book. Okay, so for those of you who haven't heard any of our uh, other parts on this book, hi, how's it going? This book is The Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot. And the first part is basically just all about this guy, Alan Dulles. And you've heard it, Alan Dulles' name. He kind of helped start the CIA, right? He was like kind of pivotal in its early years. Who was he? Second part was like, here's the Imperium that they created. Here's all of the, you know, like socialist, third world, democratically elected, not even third world in a lot of cases, like leaders that were assassinated or taken out or cooed or whatever by the CIA and why that happened. Third part's just like they killed Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> so like spoiler alerts, yeah, CIA, whatever. Um, but before we get into the story, I think it is just worth kind of lingering on that point just a little bit that you say that like there is a pretty fine line between like conspiracy theory and like conspiracy theory and and obviously everybody is going to say that like even like you people are going to be like yeah there's conspiracy theory and then there's like the mole children underneath new york city like of course <laughs> but like i don't know this book does come across even with its liberal tendencies as like well researched and just like outlining a series of events that um like i don't know just like took place <laughs> like i don't know it comes across as like popular history and so it falls prey to some of the issues that a lot of pop history does but also like a couple, like, what, one to two years after Kennedy was shot, like, two-thirds of the American population didn't believe the morning report or whatever. Like, it was, like, immediately afterward, nobody believed it. So, yeah. like, I don't know. I think I we're going to if what is conspiracy theory and what's conspiracy theory yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you wanted to, like, create the ultimate appearance of cover-up, mm. you would do the <laughs> Warren report, right? Yeah, like, yeah. No wonder people were suspicious. Mm. And I, I mean, like, a conspiracy is any more than one person, right? Yeah. If it was anybody other than Oswald, Oswald. acting alone, <laughs> yeah. then it's a conspiracy. Exactly. Um, in terms of, like, David Talbot's suggesting that Alan Dulles is the main culprit, and he also mm. points the fingers at some other quite sort of, like, high-profile persons... <laughs> He really does paint the picture of a kind of like united faction of American high society realizing mm. that this ne deed needed to be done and the number of people who were like involved or like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, this thing needs to happen. <laughs> by hook or by crook. By hook or by crook. It's quite, it's quite an extensive web that... Mm. Talbot draws. So it's strange. It's a strange book, really, isn't it? Because he doesn't like, he isn't like, here is the scenario. He doesn't like lay out all the pieces around Dealey Plaza and like <laughs> give the sort of blow by blow yeah. chronological timeline. 
Um, it's more like setting up all of the piece, the pictures on the pin board and like telling you where the string should be, but letting yeah. you put the string there yourself kind of thing. Yeah. And it's almost a little bit like how far do you want to go down this route? How much, which of these tidbits do you want to decide how much faith you put in? Uh, and there are certain circumstantial pieces of evidence. There are certain, certain very um, concrete pieces of evidence. Mm. Um, There's a bit of Really like, what mm. it is, is an argument like of sort of a mass of yeah. pieces of evidence kind of thing. Like the, the, the picture is what you see emerging from all of the crazy coincidences, <laughs> all of the people that happen to be in certain places at certain times, all of the people who actually seem to know certain people kind of thing. So it's certainly not like concrete perhaps, or maybe yeah. it's a very sort of like, it's the landscape and not the... I don't know. I mean, you, you finished the metaphor. No, you're me. you're definitely right. Uh, not the details, yeah. <laughs> because like he's not gonna be like, oh, here's the guy's name who was on top of the parking garage. Here's the guy's name who was on top of this building and that building, and here's when they fired the shots at exactly this time. This is where the cartridges fell. What he's doing is basically being like, here's all of the people who really hated Kennedy. Here's what they said, explicitly being like, wow, I wish somebody would kill that guy. And then basically being like, here's a lot of people who were definitely involved. Uh, you know what happened from there. Does it matter who was actually on top of the uh, on top of the buildings or whatever? Mm. But it is, I think, also worth remembering from our last episode on this, the ideology that uh, Talbot's kind of working from, which is that like C. Wright Mills. It seems like he like loves that guy a lot, and C. Wright Mills is definitely like not working from a Marxist tradition. He's working from like a completely new tradition of his own to talk about the power elite and how power works in the United States, and that finds its way into this. Um, story about Kennedy, as I think you'll all see. It's not a very, like, Marxist reading. Hopefully we can kind of try and add something more than, like, what C. Wright Mills would just say is, like, it's the goddamn CIA and the power people. It's like, what do you mean by that? I don't know. Um, so, yeah. Did we just dive into it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there's it, a way to look at it in terms of, like, a sort of means and motive and opportunity mm. kind of structure, I suppose. There were, I, I had this question that I was asking myself I was getting toward at the end of the book trying to work out what the entire structural narrative of the book was. Yeah. Whether it's like... Because I was sort of expecting it to take a hard left turn and suddenly become like a really conspiratorial book, which yeah. is what it isn't kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I was trying to work out whether it's this sort of like um, quite comprehensible down-to-earth reading of the infamous activities of the CIA... And equally, Alan Dulles' sort of central role in building that institution to operate in the way that we now know that it operated and sort of showing how that institution and that collection of actors with that person at the helm could go on to potentially yeah. perpetrate this murder or series of murders, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And then also, there's the other way of reading it where... Um, Maybe that whole preamble was just to set up Alan Dulles as yeah. somebody who um, had all of the wherewithal to commit this crime kind yeah. of thing. So maybe it was kind of like clothing a conspiracy theory in a sort of academic setting. It's yeah. kind of regardless, ir irrelevant, I suppose. But that's all to kind of like set up Alan Dulles's, um means and capability. He sort of built the network, built... Um, the institutions that were able to perpetrate this and also like was this linking force between all of these different members of American society. Um, 
And then also there's the kind of like motive, the schism that was emerging in American political life at that period of time kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah, um, So I guess that's my generalized reading of the narrative of the book in general. Yeah. No, it's interesting, yeah, because we were talking right before this about, like, what was the author's purpose in writing this book. And I kind of feel like it was he really wanted to talk about Kennedy, but then was like, okay, well, to talk about Kennedy, you need to connect the dots to, like, the Bay of Pigs. Okay, to talk about the Bay of Pigs, you kind of need to talk about, you know, Fidel. And to talk about all that, you need to talk about, okay, God, we have to talk about the stories of, like, Mosadeg and about all of these people. And he was like, okay, what's a good way to frame that? Ostensibly writing a, bio a biography of... Um, Dulles. So that's kind of what it comes across as and just like using him as a framing device for all this crazy stuff, which in, in hindsight, I think is probably a really good idea because like, as you'll see, Dulles and the CIA are like function as these connections between different points of society and all of the different kind of like, hesitate to use the word class, but like class hierarchies within the CIA um, are really symbolic of that. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. I um, just want to fix my mic. Oh, well. I'm not quite sure what's happening with it. There we go. Well, Dan... Like all good stories, we start with a man named Dick Drain. <laughs> and the author, David Talbot, does not make a point to linger on this, but we start with a man whose to. name is Dick Drain, whose name is Richard Drain, but he introduces himself as Dick Drain. <laughs> and this is, this is to frame the Bay of Pigs, which is obviously a massive part of the story. Um, basically, just to sum it up, kind of like... CIA organized different paramilitary groups going in to invade Cuba and, like, take over the island. And that's the story that we're all told in American school, right? It was, you know, it's just this plan gone wrong. And, it oh, it really embarrassed Kennedy. Let's not talk about it anymore. Moving on. The purpose of bringing it up in this chapter, though, is to kind of say that, like, there's this interaction between our man, Dick Drain, who was, like, on the ground overseeing things, and Alan Dulles while it's all going down, while the, like, you know, pigs are, like, you know, on the beach getting, like, mown down by Fidel's guys. The hogs. The hogs. Um, where Dick Drain is uh, saying to Dulles, like, damn, things aren't going so hot in Cuba, man. I'm kind of freaking out. Like, we kind of, we kind of messed this one up. And David Talbot, like, paints this picture of Dulles as, like, not really caring. And almost like he expected this. And so that kind of sets up like talking all about the Bay of Pigs. Why did Dulles kind of expect this to happen? Is that what he wanted to happen? Mm. Yeah, Dulles, as so, was so often his sort of operational strategy, was on holiday when this whole stuff yeah. was going down. Yeah. <laughs> and he arrived back at the airport and was picked up by Dick Drain, who had to inform <laughs> him how disastrously the invasion was going. And as you say, Alan Dulles is... And I, I mean, I thought it was it was kind of being like... This was the signs of Alan Dulles kind of losing the plot a bit, yeah, not yeah, really yeah. understanding yeah. some degree of sinality going on kind of thing. Um, and uh, Dick Drain kind of wants to take him back to CIA headquarters because it's kind of like... <laughs> The old man will come and fix everything. Yeah. Like Alan Dulles will sort everything out. Somehow he will like direct from the sidelines his attack and it will all turn around. <laughs> and instead Alan Dulles takes him to his house and they have whiskey and they chat <laughs> for a bit. Uh, and uh, Dick Drain makes his very, very, very uh, rapid exit because he's really kind of unnerved by yeah. uh, the coolness of Alan Dulles. I and say... I like the bit, like, sorry, like um, the scene that he paints of like, the the headquarters the yeah. cia headquarters yeah. when like 
when this is all going down. Like he, he paints a picture of like people in utter despair, people yeah. weeping. Picked a bad day to stop sniffing glue. Yeah. Like, ah. I just sort of imagine like people, CIA agents, like running around hysterical, sort <laughs> yeah. of like screaming and like waving their hands around and like I don't know the whole whole uh, like it paints it as if their entire reality is coming apart, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, I would say if you ever were in the CIA headquarters and you were trying to book some vacation time and you saw that Alan Dulles had booked some vacation time, just hide in a bunker for that <laughs> yeah. day. Something bad's going to happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, he comes to the conclusion pretty quickly that like this was Dulles's plan and that he supposedly set up the Bay of Pigs operation with like what is he's quoting someone here as saying like c minus officers and expendable <laughs> cuban puppets which is pretty classic so like he set this operation up to fail and some people kind of beforehand were like why is he doing this again as you say like is he losing the plot but the purpose is kind of made out to be that dulles knew that they would get pinned down on the beach that things would start to go really bad and that would force newly elected kennedy's hand to like use the military and the air force because it's the only thing that could save them to just fully invade cuba mm-hmm. um and I don't know my history very well, Dan, but I don't think that happened. No. <laughs> Did those boys ever make it home? I would imagine a lot of them made it home. A lot of them didn't, though. Uh-huh, uh-huh. A lot of them ended up in prison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That's for sure. Um, yes, exactly. It's uh, it's an effort on Dulles' part to manipulate the ostensibly naive and weak-willed John F. Kennedy, the mm. incumbent president who's only been in office for a few months, Um and Alan Dulles, sort of like veteran statesman, thinks he's going to. This is his opportunity, kind of thing. Mm. And yes, it's 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 suggested that contrary to what you were just describing as your um, sort of high school interpretation of events <laughs> or high school education interpretation of events, mm. um, it was known very early on that there was absolutely no way to stage this kind of invasion. Yeah, like it would be rebuffed by the Cuban defense forces, but also there really wasn't... I mean, the idea is that it would spark an uprising in Cuba, right? Yeah. And I think they kind of knew that there was no real way that that was actually going to happen. Like, the yeah. likelihood of inspiring some kind of, like, eruption of civil resistance like, yeah. was far-fetched. And as soon as it was realized it was far-fetched, this other, this other sort of strategy was hatched, which was, mm. can we spark an actual military invasion? Mm. And, I mean, and as you say, yeah, that that did not happen. Yeah, the the weak will, weak will Kennedy was not as uh, easily duped as <laughs> as um, as as uh, Dulles thought that he might be. Yeah, um, and this was the sort of like seeds of the resentment that began to build between the sort of like defense and sort of economic establishment in mm. America and the incumbent administration made up of what's described as new frontiersmen, these people who were from a different generation, from different echelons of American society who had won this almost shock victory in the 1960 election um, and taken over the White House. Yeah. And I mean, to a certain extent, it is like, oh, props to Kennedy for not destroying the island and invading it because like most people around his like advisory table or whatever were like, like it was like Curtis LeMay. Yeah. Go back to our McNamara episode to hear us talk up all great things about Curtis LeMay. But like he was like, okay, invade the island, kill everybody, bomb the Soviet Union, bring out the nukes, baby. It's all going to be great. Yeah, we got to get there fast. There was a bit that induced an audible laugh from me when I was reading this book <laughs> when Kennedy describes LeMay as what deranged or a lunatic <laughs> yeah. or something for his like 
Well, it's coming back to the nuclear brinksmanship of yeah. John Foster did all this kind of thing. Like, yeah. LeMay was just committed to having it out with the Soviets. Yeah. And every time Kennedy seemingly passed up the opportunity to have nuclear apocalypse, <laughs> Baby. it was apparently something that was wrong with Kennedy and yeah. not with the deranged mindset of Curtis LeMay. Yeah, I saw some badass footage recently of... Um, post-Cuban revolution of people going around ripping down not just American flags, but also like, I don't remember exactly what companies it was, but like, you know, like DuPont or United Fruit Company, like banners and like ripping out all of their decals on the factories and stuff. I was just like, hell yeah. So, I mean, that's a huge part of it too, right? You'll come to a a specific group of brothers down the line in this Mm. episode Mm. when we talk about people who lost their uh, property. But among the American, like, ruling class... (laughs) I love that shit. Yeah. Among the American ruling class, there was, like, a huge... Not just, like, the obvious anti-communist shit, but there was a, like, hey, we've got our property stolen. That was our property in Cuba. So it wasn't just, like, defense contractors and, like, actual defense guys like LeMay um, who just wanted to, like, bomb, 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 destroy. This is, like, a huge military threat. We need to get rid of it before they destroy Florida. Um, But, yeah, so that was... That was in April 1961. Um, And I mean, I talked about this on one of the last episodes as saying, like, Kennedy, dude, you show up in this hostile, like, government. You need to get rid of everybody. And, like, huge mistake, obviously. I mean, he died because of it. Like, huge mistake on his part not getting rid of, like, everybody and starting completely fresh. He wanted to have this whole, like, horseshoe theory, both sides, listen to both people. Okay, I'm a liberal. Okay, Curtis LeMay, I will have him on for a while. Eventually, he realizes he needs to get rid of a lot of these people. (laughs) It's called the liberal's gambit, and it always fails. (laughs) The liberal's gambit, baby. Um, Eventually, he realizes he needs to get rid of a lot of these people, but doesn't do it very well. He gets rid of LeMay, which is great. Um, And eventually, he does get rid of Dulles. But there's a famous quote from him that you always hear, like, independent researchers say that I'm just going to repeat because I feel like by law I have to do this when you're talking about an Alan Dulles conspiracy theory JFK assassination podcast episode where he this is Kennedy talking he says I probably made a mistake keeping Alan Dulles on I've never worked with him and therefore I can't estimate his meaning when he tells me things Dulles is a legendary figure and it's hard to operate with legendary figures it's a hell of a way to learn things but if I've learned one thing from this business it's that we're going to have to eventually deal with the CIA And then he goes on to say, uh, we need to splinter the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the wind. And it's interesting, right? Because Kennedy kind of comes across as like, he takes the blame for the Bay of Pigs to a certain extent. I think that's really interesting. Well, now that I think about it, maybe it's not interesting because if you kind of came out and said, damn, I'm not in control of my government, that's just (laughs) like some like wild, like Wall Street guys, probably wouldn't have been a good luck. No, no, no. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the beginnings of the resentment in the Kennedy administration that he is forced to have to take the blame for this kind of thing yeah. and covers for the CIA and covers for Dulles and keeps Dulles on for a little while because he kind of has to. But this is the beginnings of the realization that he's he'd made a mistake keeping Dulles on for one. And he also, he needed to get rid of him pretty quickly. Yeah. And also that like, he, I think it seems like he was still operating under the assumption that the CIA is just what Truman set it up to be, which is just, it will give me information. And then they're like, yo, we killed Patrice Lumumba. And like, you remember all that other crazy stuff that happened before he got into office? That was us too. And he's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> we need yeah, to yeah. deal with yeah, this yeah. really quickly. Yeah, yeah. For people who don't remember or haven't listened to our last episode, the CIA knew that Patrice Lumumba was dead and kept Kennedy in the dark about it for at least a month before it happened and basically executed Lumumba upon orders that were given by uh, Eisenhower at the end of his administration mm-hmm. even though Kennedy had basically just come into office kind of thing so mm-hmm. there was already this effort to uh, conduct 
operations in a clandestine way behind the back of the president. Mm. And then it fed into, obviously, the Bay of Pigs. And we could also talk about... Do you want to talk about France? Because Let's talk about France. Real quick, I do just want to re-mention two really famous pieces of American media which come directly out of the Lumumba assassination. The day that he was assassinated was the day that Eisenhower gave that fucking anti-defense, like, uh, what's it called? The, like, defense machine. Yeah, military-industrial complex. Military-industrial complex. And he was like, they're going to start doing some crazy things if you don't get rid of him. He had literally that day given the order for Patrice Lumumba to be killed. And then the famous photo of Kennedy with his head in his hands on the phone. That was him on the phone with whoever told him, hey, they killed Lumumba. Mm -hmm. Just so, yeah. Hmm. Let's talk about happier things. Yeah, let's talk about efforts at coups in France. So, yeah, just real quick. That was April 1961, Bay of Pigs. April 1961 in France was, like, I think crazier. <laughs> I had no idea going into this that there was a failed coup yeah. attempt. Against de Gaulle. Against de Gaulle in France in the early 60s. From disgruntled military... Um, fascists. F- yeah, fascists, I guess. I, I guess so. Yeah, people who were, who were irked by de Gaulle's desire to pull out of Algeria. Yeah. Um, after having committed to m- keeping Algeria as part of France, de Gaulle was now re- realizing that he was going to have to pull out of it, basically. Um, and military forces and a particular general in Algeria started to conspire against mm. against de Gaulle yeah. and uh, were well on their way to executing a coupon. And if anything, if they'd operate, if they'd acted faster, they probably would have succeeded. But Typical they French. dallied, <laughs> dallied in a lot of ways, um, and. De Gaulle was able to, I suppose, rally the yeah. French people to resist this coup attempt. Yeah, it's but really that, fascinating. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, De, De, Gaulle's, De Gaulle's career is really interesting and I think worth pausing on because it's like, he was the leader of like Free France or whatever, like what wasn't Nazi France mm-hmm. during the war. And then like, he kind of takes charge of things and he like kind of sorts some stuff out after the war. And then he just kind of disappears for a lot of the 50s to go write his memoirs, which again, typical France. I think it's very classic. And then he comes back because there's a huge constitutional crisis. And then this is post that constitutional crisis when he's in power again because everyone's like, oh, who can we turn to? Let's just go to De Gaulle. He'll figure everything out. I don't know. I'm too tired. Let's just go to De Gaulle. Um, and It's lunchtime. We need a president. <laughs> <Fuck it. laughs> yeah. We ran president. Um, we love the French. I'm, it's just the English rubbing off on me being mean to the French, but French <laughs> people are very cool. So yeah, and then... The, De Gaulle, very flip-floppy on the Algerian question, makes it seem like, no, we're never going to pull out of Algeria. And then it's like, as things get worse and worse and worse and more people die, and it's like, guys, Algeria would really like to be free. Then he's like, okay, fine, we'll do it. But then, like, there's no real plan right away for what's going to happen. And so, yeah, as you say, this guy whose name was Maurice Schall, who was, like, one of the French generals, they, like, take power of Algeria, and they, like, fully take over Algeria for a period and they land troops just outside of Paris in these forests, and everybody just panics. And it was funny because I looked up de Gaulle's famous speech that night where he's like, I need everybody in France to like help out, otherwise things are going to be really bad and I'll be dead tomorrow morning. Um, and I looked it up and I was like, oh, here it is. I found the video. And then I turned it on and he started talking. I was like, I don't speak French. I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> I'm sure it sounded inspiring. Man. Oh, it sounded great. <laughs> it sounded so great. Um, but yeah, the story about how like de Gaulle was able to, and the French people were able to like fend off this, um, fascist attempted like coup is really, really fascinating because like 
basically everybody, first of all, there's a general strike that's organized, which, oh, who organized the general strike? Was it the liberal French government? No, it was the Communist Party and the labor unions. Thank you very much, guys, for not allowing fascism in France. Also, just like, that's cool, because like, the goal, liberal, but they're like, I mean, what's better? I'm like, come on, organize a strike. This would be very bad if they got into power. Mm-hmm. Very cool. This is a threat to democracy. Though. Yeah, we are exactly. at least yeah. <laughs> like supporters of the yeah. the democracy and the constitution. Yeah, so good for them. Um, and they basically organize people to just like general strike and everybody like go park your cars on the runways where these people are going to land, barricade all the streets, don't let them into France. And then just kind of eventually it fizzles out because de Gaulle actually like sends some people to go kidnap all of the leaders and like bring them back to Paris. And without the leaders, it all just kind of fizzles out. It's also very classic because it wasn't <laughs> Talbot brings up a like bit about Maurice Shaw. Like, uh, was it him running away where he's like going to his plane and he like trips on the steps and like falls over in a comical face? I, I thought like, it was the other way around. I thought he'd been captured. He surrenders and he's brought back to right. Paris and then he stumbles down. <laughs> like added to the long list of people who have stumbled down. Uh, <laughs> airplane um steps off steps i suppose yeah. <laughs> uh when the cameras are rolling like he stumbled yeah. at the bottom i think uh, that's um, so funny <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah i think he was given a very lenient prison sentence wasn't yeah it? Was like, 15 years yeah. <laughs> and, like i don't know if he actually served that de gaulle should have shot him yeah. i'm just gonna say that it's also interesting because de gaulle is like at one point talking that night when they're like oh man this could be really bad de gaulle's talking with his like second in command or whatever and is like um Damn, so what do you think's gonna happen? And I find it really funny because I thought like the second in command started getting like going way too much into detail about what he'd do if he was like Maurice Shaw. And he's like, well, you know, I'd uh, I'd come in here and I'd uh, make you run down the steps and I'd shoot you in the back to make it seem like you're running away. And I just got the image of De Gaulle being like, I don't need this much information. That's a lot, man. <laughs> um, but yeah, needless to say, De Gaulle's able to take power back or I guess just keep power. Um, But the reason that our good friend David Talbot brings this up is because he makes the point that, like, this wasn't so much about Algeria. Like, this wasn't so much about these people keeping power of Algeria. It was actually about NATO and about U.S. ambitions for NATO and about de Gaulle realizing that if France stayed in NATO and gave all of its troops power um, or, like, command of his troops to NATO, that would basically just mean giving it to America and America through NATO, wanted um, France to have a nuclear arsenal that it could use, and de Gaulle really didn't want this. He was like, this is a horrible idea. So Talbot makes the point that, like, there might have been a little bit of uh, American intelligence uh, involved in this coup, which is uh, less than ideal, I suppose. (laughs) It's always less than ideal. (laughs) Yeah, and there's also the suggestion that there was this fear that by leaving Algeria, they would leave Algeria to the communists, and yeah. it would become this sort of like a bit of a communist bastion. But yeah, that's always yeah. the way. Yeah, yeah, but that's always the that's always the boogeyman scenario of um, the, yeah. these sort of like spooks. Yeah. Have you seen the the posters, the UK posters during the Troubles of like a hammer and sickle over Ireland, and it's like if we let the IRA win, they'll bring communism into the UK. And I it's have like, not oh seen God. those, but They're I will awesome. look them up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, mm. CIA yeah. Pro, like, involved in involved in this coup attempt in France, and once again dropping Kennedy in it. Yeah, and I don't I don't know leaving him red faced and embarrassed and having to deny any involvement, but also like having to acknowledge to some extent that the CIA had been involved yeah. and like basically adding further impetus and evidence to the fact that he was going to have to. Take action on this, yeah, and also further adding to um, De Gaulle's sort of 
clear-mindedness about how threatening the CIA was, both to America and to the world, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, and it seems like de Gaulle, he, may, he paints a picture that de Gaulle just knew that this was the CIA, at least to a certain extent. There's, at one point he says in some of his war memoirs, de Gaulle accused Dulles of being part of a scheme that was determined to silence or set aside the old French general. <laughs> kind of a classic. Pierre de Beneville, a right-wing resistance leader in Dulles' OSS payroll, was later accused of betraying Jean Moulin, a de, Gaulle, de Gaulle's dashing representative in the French underground to the Gestapo. After she was captured, he was beaten to death by Klaus Barbie. That's kind of like, oh, geez. Um, but one thing I think that's, that's interesting about this, this made me think to an earlier part of the book when Dulles is at a dinner party and they're talking about someone at the dinner party is like, can you please kill Nasser for me in Egypt? And there's the really interesting bit where he's like, well, we could, but that wouldn't be easy because we'd have to find someone who's not an outsider, who's kind of a little bit crazy and very extreme and radical, and they would have to do it for us. And I thought that was an interesting parallel to like the French coup, because you, it wasn't that like this had nothing to do with Algeria and it wasn't that this was like all to do with NATO. It was definitely that like, this, you know, the CIA people who were involved in this kind of like went up to this guy, what was his name, Maurice Shaw and all of his cronies and were like, yeah, it kind of sucks that Algeria is like getting taken away from you, huh? And like, hey, we kind of have some similar interests. And it's like, it really made me think that this whole coup is just very similar to that. Like you need to find someone who's an extremist, who's on the inside to kind of like accomplish your goals for you. Typical CIA stuff. Mm -hmm. really I mean, yeah, it's very similar to what happened in Congo, what happened in... Yeah, true, yeah, yeah. Um, Iran, I suppose, mm. where like um, you you find forces who are willing to ally with you and then supply them the means to mm. to execute the coup on your behalf, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. One thing that we'll see is that Kennedy. Uh, we should also say, I suppose, that Kennedy did offer to help De Gaulle to a certain extent. De Gaulle was like, not only is that like kind of an empty offer because you can't actually help me because that would mean like completely undermining everything that like you supposedly like are in control of your government, et cetera, et cetera. But he was like, I'll just deal with this on my own. But it's also interesting because Kennedy definitely found himself in a similar situation in terms of like elements within his government not taking his orders and at like times directly disobeying them. Um, and operating towards completely different ends but it's interesting because we see that like de gaulle like he demonstrated that he was definitely willing to like fight fire with fire you know what i mean and like there's a point in this book where talbot talks about how de gaulle like hired a bunch of uh uh like ex-vietnamese exiles to go and just blow up cafes in algeria where he knew that like these fascists would be meeting that they would like kidnap these guys they'd assassinate some of them um you do not see kennedy's government doing that i'm not saying that that was like the way out of it or like what he should have done but no oh, de gaulle managed to stay in power and kennedy didn't funny how things like that work um we should also say that after the algiers putsch there were like a number of times where de gaulle was nearly assassinated in very similar ways that kennedy wound up being assassinated talbot brings up a point where like He's uh, driving in a car in a parade with his wife and they go around a hairpin turn and a bunch of people open up on him and they all miss, which is crazy. Um, just, yeah, just fucking thanks insane. to the skills of the driver, they managed to get away, really. Yeah. Or, you know, it's incredibly lucky that De Gaulle is unharmed in that attack. Yeah. Um, an attack which it's very easy to point fingers at the French equivalent to the CIA mm. having had involvement in. Anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And some of these same characters will pop up later on, kind of thing. Yeah. We'll get to it uh, when there are uh, 
French secret service agents for whatever better phrase. <laughs> Wondering around uh, uh, Yeah, I happen to be <laughs> in Texas at a period of time. But I don't know. That's not necessarily surprising because like, or it's not necessarily suspicious because it just seems like everybody was in Dallas. Yeah, that's true. It was, just a, it was just a time to be in Dallas. It's time to be in Dallas. It's like, hey, Nixon's in Dallas. Let's go hang out with Nixon. He's fun. Said so nobody ever. Um, all right. So then, yeah, Kennedy is like, I'm going to do something typical liberal does the like half hearted like i'll just fire dulles and everything will be okay and he doesn't he, like he goes through and he purges so, like a number of people from the cia yeah it's mostly people who were directly involved in the bay of pigs yeah they're kind of gone which and is Dul- like oh if that was dulles playing 3d chess again yeah. <laughs> oh my god well, dulles, dulles wanted because it, it by being absent at the time of the bay of pigs attack and also by putting all these sort of c-list oh agency people in charge he was hoping that the hammer would fall the, the dagger i suppose the sword would fall on other people yeah um but kind of sorts through that quite easily it was yeah. like no we have to get rid of you and he eventually was removed but it wasn't the cleaning of house that should have happened and i think kennedy knew needed to happen and there were efforts made to do that but that effort was stalled kind of thing so there were only a few sort of top ranking people who um, were removed, Alan Dulles included. But then in the efforts to find a replacement for Dulles, Kennedy ends up settling on somebody who was already a CIA insider who was kind of, I think he was kind of a, a bit of a step removed from Dulles, but like definitely like... He's one of the boys. An a, uh, yeah, one of the boys, one of the agency <laughs> boys. There's this, there's this period of time when Kennedy's policy toward these kind of activities is that is suggested to be one whereby he's trying to get liberals to do conservative things and conservatives to do liberal things. Yeah. And <laughs> you can definitely sort of see what's happening here. They're sort of putting us a conservative figure in position, but think they're going to be able to work with him or work around him to affect this sweeping change of the CIA that never actually materializes. Yeah, yeah. Well, because it's still the same. I mean, there was a point in time when he was contemplating putting his brother in charge. Of the CIA. Oh my god, dude! Alternate history. Oh my god, <laughs> Bobby Kennedy's like, we're going after the unions big yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I get the impression like John F. Kennedy would have put Bobby Kennedy in charge of just about everything. If yeah, could, yeah. If he true. could handle the workload. There's something. Yeah, there's something cool about that. I yeah. don't know. It's just sweet. It's very yeah. sweet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, God. There's so much crap. There's so much crap to get through. So basically a year goes by um, between... Oh, Alan Dulles leaves office on my birthday. Oh, yeah. In Dan's November. birthday. Oh, my in God. November of 61. Yeah. Dan's birthday, November 61. It's the day Dan was born. <laughs> oh, I suppose maybe I was born on the date in which Alan Dulles left office. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't my birthday then, but... I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you have a good birthday. Yeah. I share a birthday with Harry Truman, <laughs> who weirdly comes across well in this book, which he <laughs> did not come across well. Um, yeah. yeah. So, happy birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, year goes by. That was November 61. Year goes by. Now we're in October 62. What happened in October of 62? It was... Oh, I don't know. Not very much at all. <laughs> yeah, it's just the time that everybody on the planet almost died and everything was destroyed. Um, Cuban Missile Crisis. So Cuban Missile Crisis, I like... Kind of... when In high school, when we learned about it, I was like, come on. We, could, we couldn't have actually come that close. How close could it have been? This is history. Come on. This wouldn't have happened. That would have been too wild. And it's funny because I also remember... like I have asked my grandparents about this and they... 
don't know if it's just because they were on the other side of the country and they weren't really near Florida and they were just kind of like, mm, I don't care. But they kind of were like, didn't seem like anything was actually going to happen. This book makes it seem like things came very close. As in our McNamara uh, episode, we talked about this as things coming extremely close to nuclear apocalypse. But this, for a number of reasons, made it seem extremely close to happening. Yeah, I've always thought that all of the kind of like alternate history speculation that one comes across from time to time was some degree of hysteria. I was yeah. always a bit like, did, is it really possible that we would in a way have come of close up to... Kennedy. Sorry? It's a way of like building Big, up it, Kennedy too. Yeah, well, I, is that not what we're about to do now? In the, well, like... sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this idea that it's a miracle that the human race survived the 20th century and we were ever that close to like nuclear apocalypse. Um, but I, I now sort of like spec now willing to join the the speculation <laughs> that sort of says like if it hadn't been Kennedy in charge in America and it hadn't been. Um, Chris Jeffrey charging the USSR if they couldn't have worked out this come to some kind of degree of detente if they hadn't have had this dialogue that developed through this period and degree of mutual respect that developed through this period Um, and (laughs) knowing what I now know of the kind of characters that were involved in Eisenhower's administration Mm. John Foster Dulles amongst many other luminaries (laughs) and the continued centrality of people like Curtis LeMay into this uh, the Kennedy administration and the degree of zealous commitment to the idea of having it out with the Russians and having go do having it <laughs> doing out. a nuclear war. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're just gonna have it out with the Russians and yeah. launch all of the nuclear <laughs> weapons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like yeah, we're just it's just sort of gentlemanly combat. Yeah, yeah, it's insane. We'll exchange swords at the end. <laughs> I think the thing that blew my mind most about this, because in the McNamara movie, they just kind of made it seem like Kennedy was the level-headed one and, like, Khrushchev was, like, huffing Febreze trying to get through the day and, like, freaking out. Um, They both seemed very level-headed, but the craziest thing was that, like, during the Bay of Pigs crisis, the CIA was organizing no, and during, implementing or yeah not during, during the yeah during the cuban missile crisis during this entire period of time yeah. the cia was permanently organizing <laughs> invasions of cuba exactly just get get a boat full of lads the sending lads. them over but that's the thing it's like during during the missile crisis it's like they were just with boats going by and just strafing villages and it's like wow that is not helping it's like <laughs> in, in history class you learn about like the goddamn Cubans already had missiles there and they were being so sneaky and duplicitous. It's like we were like shooting their people while this nuclear like confrontation brinksmanship was happening. It's like it is crazy that someone wasn't just like fucking launch the missiles. Yeah, like yeah, Cuba, what, like 20 miles off the floor of the coast? <laughs> yeah. Like make yourself central to the Cold War by all means. Like don't be peripheral. Yeah. If you're peripheral, then you get knocked off. Yeah, like, for sure. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Good advice for people <laughs> 70 years ago. <laughs> Make yourself and, peripheral. Um, oh, yeah, I mean, we've talked about this in the past. The quid pro quo arrangement that was come to that caused the the cessation of this crisis, I suppose. Mm. The realization was made that um, America had nuclear warheads in Turkey and they were equally irksome to the USSR as the idea of having nuclear warheads in Cuba was to Understandable. the US. Um, what I didn't know was that Kennedy had already ordered these nuclear weapons removed from Turkey. Mm. And it was another way in which he had been snubbed or completely disregarded by the military and defense establishment. Or another example of how he was 
not in total or even in any control of these apparatuses. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Which just makes it all the more crazy. Mm. It's like, oh man, I, I would have been one of those people with like bury a container out back in my yard during this <laughs> week. I'm just, I'm just going to go live in there, eat my beans. <laughs> I mean, you're halfway there already. <laughs> I'm halfway there already with my broad beans. Um, yeah, so that was nuts. And that was a bit of a stressful period for Kennedy and uh, the Kennedy administration. But they come out the other side of it which is impressive, and the world comes out the other side of it. Um, eventually, we're going to have to talk about Kennedy as a person and about how, like, none of this is meant to, like, big him up and to make him seem like... Because this book does really fall victim to, like, the the legend of the Kennedys. It's mm. like the damned generation of, like, people who, you know, goddamn, if only they hadn't died, we would have had per the perfect liberal democracy, uh, which is, of course, crap. Yeah. You know, because people were all like when we were talking about doing this episode we were like i mean do we just frame this entirely as like the bourgeoisie fighting the bourgeoisie because it's like if you frame it like that like who cares you know what i mean it's like wow they killed one of their own i really don't care to a certain extent this whole story is that it's also just insane yeah <laughs> so it's just fun to talk about yeah i mean yeah you're quite right to say that and to insert that now we were discussing this beforehand weren't we that um this book really fixates on the both ideological but also material incentives or motivations for this wide array of establishment figures in America pitching themselves against the Kennedys and the Kennedy administration, hmm. um, like circling sharks to some extent, trying to work out who was going <laughs> to do the deed, <laughs> um, egging each other on. <laughs> Um, and the, the way I guess I decided to think about it, I suppose, and with this prompting of you suggesting that maybe this was just the bourgeoisie taking out one of their own kind yeah. of thing, or this sort of interclass conflict, was to begin thinking about it in terms of the reading we did. Um, uh, Mike Duncan Davis, Mike <laughs> Davis, god damn it! Yeah, the Mike Davis reading that we did, which was all about the inter-bourgeoisie conflict, the different factions of the capitalist class that were uh, sort of vying for political power later on, in the, but basically from Nixon onwards kind of thing, or from Goldwater almost, or even through this entire period, yeah. um, how, the, how they represented various factions. But what you don't really get in this book is you get lots of things saying, here are the material interests of um, Alan Dulles and his, like, fellow Wall Street lawyers, but also all of the kind of like luminaries of American capitalism. Um, here are their material interests, both foreign and domestic, that would lead them to potentially contemplate the requirement of uh, removing a sitting president. But you don't really get very much from the other side of like what the Kennedy's class position was, what yeah. their sort of like material interests were, what section of American society they represented. So going forward from doing this podcast, we certainly, I'd certainly like to like look into the Kennedys a little bit, yeah. uh, look into kind of like material basis of their wealth, but also the factions of capital that they drew support from. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, they just kind of seem to be like they have a lot of social capital. Like that's like, the, you know, they hang out at the expensive resorts and they're, oh, it's the Kennedys. Oh, yeah, yeah so yeah. we'll see them at Cape Cod or Yeah, whatever. this is the thing we were talking about before. Like I always assumed they were like des descendants of an ancient lineage mm. of immigrants to America kind of thing, going back all the way to the sort of 
pre-revolutionary times kind yeah. of thing. But that's not the case. I mean, all eight of his great-grandparents were immigrants from Ireland. Is that yeah. right? That's so, why it's such a big deal. Yeah. Well, not only he was Catholic, but he was also just like kind of an immigrant, you yeah. know? And I mean, like one of the reasons it's so hard to pin down like what element of what faction of capital he represented was because like he, his, the, re- the way they got all their money was because his dad was just a criminal. Like his dad was like a prohibition, like, you know, booze smuggling, like, you know, crook. And so it's like, he couldn't really openly be like, this is, you know, we all like the Kennedys because he's part of this faction of capital because that faction of capital was like illegal, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so instead they cultivate this persona, which is this, this air of, um, celebrity prestige for sort of exactly like yeah carries them through life maybe that's something that damned them too which is interesting i mean if we really want to yeah, have maybe like they have no, I had no connection kind of thing yeah and there was no one to like protect them within the bourgeoisie i yeah, guess yeah, yeah, yeah. it's an interesting thought yeah um hmm. what's the word uh baseless cosmopolitans rootless <laughs> cosmopolitans <laughs> Cosmopolitan, nonetheless. Yeah. He's certainly sipping on a lot of them. Isn't this where they talk all about his <laughs> his back pain and about how it was like poor Kennedy? Yeah, that was in the pain. that was in the in the sections that we read for the last oh, yeah, episode yeah. that we did on this book, but we didn't mm. really cover it. Mm. Yeah, I had no idea that he yeah that he had this sort of issue with his back that was so debilitating at mm. times. Um, I think the first time Alan Dulles met Kennedy, it was like pre hit when he was still a senator or a congressman, and he was like recuperating from another bout of whatever it was that was affecting his back. So he yeah. was sort of like bedridden and what have you. Bad back. And I think Kennedy, I think Dulles quite liked Kennedy initially, or mm-hmm. at least had this sense of like ad- admiration of him, I suppose. Or someone to be used maybe too. Perhaps. I mean, you, when, when, when it comes to Alan Dulles, you can never know what it is that's going, well, you can presume what is going through his head is, I like you because you seem useful to me. And then as yeah. soon as you are revealed not to be useful or actively my adversary, then, um, things turn murderous yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> ha 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 um i'm gonna turn on the light mm. it's friday night again so if you can hear the bells ringing it's yes. because it's bell ringing practice once again <laughs> in england it is the and english bell ringing we've night. been doing so much podcasting of late i've literally no idea what friday it is <laughs> it could it, anything could be happening right now yeah. but yeah. It's in a long. We're releasing this episode in a long time. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, I, I, there's no point in me telling you what date it is. It will yeah. bear no relevance. It's bell ringing day. It's, it's bell ringing day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we're <laughs> painting the most sort of cliche picture of England. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah opposite an ancient church. Yeah, above a pub with the yeah, 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 <laughs> bell ringing practice on a Friday night, <laughs> and then down to the pub for a pint of warm ale. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> This is how our ancestors did it, Dan. There was bell ringing practice on Fridays, also known as the Lord's Podcasting mm. Day. <laughs> did you come to England like fully expected to find yourself in the Shire, or did it just yeah, happen? Yeah, I did, okay, and I, I like, and I kind of found it because like <laughs> this is a very stereotypically like British town. It's got the big Union Jack, it's got the towers, it's got like I was like, oh, this must be what the entire country is like. <laughs> Don't um, go to the Midlands. Yeah, true, yeah. Milton Keynes, I hear it's not very Shire-esque. Um, you might want run into one famous um, graphic novelist. Ah, yes, true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's in Northampton. Oh, Northampton, yeah, bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> Scratch that. Is, yeah. Don't go looking for Alan Moore in, uh, in Milton <laughs> yeah, Keynes. Yeah, exactly. I went to Nottingham not too long ago, and I was expecting to find what I found, which was statues of Robin Hood everywhere. Uh-huh, towers uh-huh, and uh-huh. Games Workshop has its headquarters in Nottingham, know, and there is yeah. a big statue of a space marine. Really? So you could have seen that. Oh, that would have been much cooler. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah, Nottingham, cool place. 
There was also somewhere else that I went recently that was cool. Oh, that's your. Already talked about it. We've talked about that. Moving on. (laughs) Moving on. I've not been anywhere cool recently. (laughs) Um. Oh Christ, where do we where do we start with this? Uh, So okay, Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis that was October '62. Just gonna kind of scroll back here because there is Mm. a kind of a telling quote where somebody's corresponding with Nixon who keeps poking his filthy little disgusting head up in this entire book. Yeah. Um, where it says... The scoundrel of American history. Oh, the, the scoundrel of all scoundrels. Yeah. Um, the quote is, Dulles's old friend Bill Pauly, the right-wing Miami entrepreneur, which, whew, you don't want that as your tagline, right-wing Miami <laughs> entrepreneur. That's like everything bad. Um, who had long collaborated on secret CIA missions, was also warned about his involvement in the exile raids. So exile raids, he's basically saying, like these groups like Alpha 66, who were like, paramilitary groups organized by the CIA who were like without the okay of the government just raiding Cuba. Um, But he remained defiant, hatching a plot so ambitious that he claimed it would bring down Kennedy himself. In April, Bill Polly wrote a long letter to his political comrade, Tricky Dick Nixon, declaring, quote, all of the Cubans and most of the Americans in this part of the country believe that to remove Castro, you must first remove Kennedy, and that's not going to be easy. So that's kind of like put in the book to try and be like this dun-dun-dun-dun, like everybody around in the political establishment and in the underworld and in everywhere all wanted Kennedy dead, baby. They all wanted to kill him. Might well have been the case, but I also feel like a lot of the wording in this is just like, Remove Kennedy. That might just be like, get him impeached. That might just be like, you know, elect somebody else in the future. Um, And there's a little bit of slippage there because it's really hard to tell who was like really involved. Like, why was Nixon in Dallas on that day? That's never really like cleared up. Like, I don't know. So moving forward, there's going to be a little bit of slippage between like people who are actually involved because what we're about to talk about is like the day that Kennedy was killed and the people who were like involved. So, uh-huh, uh-huh. We'll yeah, every, everybody, every time somebody says Kennedy ought to be taken out, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't true. necessarily know what they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, I guess we could run a different Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people were clearly fantasizing about it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, the purpose of all of this really is to paint how deep a schism there was between the Kennedys and basically the rest of American society <laughs> yeah, for the know. most part. Yeah. And uh, a consensus was emerging that they had a problem. Yeah. Because it wasn't just the military types, the LeMays and everybody. Again, as we've said, like, it was, like, Kennedy and his brother, because his brother was attorney general at this point, were, like, doing some, what we would now call very progressive stuff. What back then was just kind of like, hey, remember the New Deal? That was kind of cool. Let's kind of try and get back to doing some of that. Um so yeah, I mean, like, what were some of the things they did? They started putting tariffs on steel to because or like just antitrust suits. Yeah, there was a, there was a period of time when he developed this very extensive sort of corporatist uh, deal between the trade unions and the government and the major steel manufacturers mm. um, to set prices and wages and basically like do classic corporatist politics, right? Like you you agree a detente between the various factions, the representative of labor and the representatives of capital. And then a like the the CEO or whatever of the, the biggest steel firm in America, a few days later turned around and actually was like, no, we're going to go totally against this thing that we've just agreed and slap this massive price increase on steel, um, which it was fe- which would have had this massive trickle down inflationary effect in the entirety of the American economy and led to like price rises for consumers. Mm. And I can't remember whether it was Kennedy himself or whether he set his like chief enforcer Bobby to work twisting arms and 
basically like uh, resisting this effort from Steele to go against this deal that they just struck. And in the process, he did successfully manage to force uh, certain steel firms to commit to not raising tariffs. And eventually this trickled down to the point where um, that, that sort of chief antagonist was forced to do the same kind of thing. Mm. So basically the Kennedy administration like strong-armed American steel into complying with their sort of like corporatist vision of how American capital and labor and government were going to relate kind of thing. Yeah, 100%. So that was one of the first kind of like warning signs to American capital, I suppose. Um, there were also significant ways in which they began to be irksome to American oil firms. Is that right? Part of it was this sort of built up resentment that Cuban oil fields or oil refineries had been lost. Mm. But there was also a point in time when Bobby Kennedy was going around actively advocating like newly independent countries to, I can't remember which country it was in particular, but to nationalize their oil firms or oil reserves, which further... In sort Bolivia. Of, and they, well, no, it wasn't necessarily... It was somewhere in, in South Bolivia. America, but I can't remember which, which country it was. Yeah. Um, but in Bolivia, I know that they, this blew my mind. They were like selling equipment to recently nationalized mines in Bolivia. Like, can you imagine an American yeah. president yeah, doing yeah, that yeah, now? Yeah, They'd yeah. be like blown up by yeah, Dick yeah, Cheney yeah. immediately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like an American American president like buying Cuban oil or something. Or even or like, like to Allende, like 10 years later. That yeah, would have yeah, been yeah. insane. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 yeah, maybe we are wrong, and we should fall for the Kennedy mystique. Like... <laughs> uh, the Kennedys. <laughs> well, I mean, the way I think about it is like the Eisenhower years were such a bit of a reaction to the New Deal that like everybody, I think, probably got really comfortable with like the red hunting and the McCarthyism yeah. and like the new right wing policies that the government hadn't had in a really long time. That like they must have all thought, oh well, that shit's all gone. We're not being progressive anymore we're done and yeah. then this guy poked his head up and was like we're gonna make some money by selling stuff to bolivia and they were like whoa <laughs> buddy i don't know if you're gonna do that yeah i guess it's worth re um thinking back to the the mike davis again mm. where the distinct the the, the, the the factional schism in american capital at that time was like whether you adhered to the new deal or whether you were willing to you wanted to go back to before the new deal and sort of like recreate the sort of libertarian, free-willing capitalist days of the, like, 20s kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and we know that, like, someone like Nixon was initially um, part of the anti-New Deal block, and then when he became president, sort of made this massive about-face and became a sort of loose advocate for a continuation of New Deal policies to some extent. Mm -hmm. And it would take a little while longer for the, the anti-New Deal factions to really get a grip on american politics yeah thinking of reagan and that kind of thing sure. but you can see it shining through here a little bit that schism still existing and you i guess you're quite uh, right to point out that these things which kind of appear really rad appear really radical for american politics now yeah. were actually only a continuation of like fdr and truman right which mm. was only what well, truman was eight years before left office kind of thing yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. um yeah it's very odd to put ourselves in that mindset back then i think because i, I don't know i think i think of like Kennedy and FDR is being separated by like a million years, yeah. you know? It's like, it's like 20. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, yeah, insane. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I always find that quite difficult. Like the, the sort of like conceptual fantasy idea about what the mid 40s were like yeah. and the 60s, yeah. like just seems so radically different that you sort of forget how different they were. And yeah. I always do that with like thinking about my parents' generation and putting them in proximity to the end of the yeah, First no, World yeah. War kind of thing. Oh, yeah. 
Um, it's actually really the Second World War, rather. <laughs> like how old are you? Gen was born in 1961, as we said. <laughs> um, but it, yeah, and then another thing that he did, which doesn't need any explanation, was raise taxes on the wealthiest part of society. Mm-hmm. So like that obviously didn't make anybody happy either, because they're like, wait a minute, we got used to not having to do this. It's also funny because it's like you're saying that about 20 years between them. It's like it's 40 years between us and Reagan. That doesn't feel like like Reagan's that shadow of that time period feels like not that long ago. Yeah. For some reason, Reagan feels closer in time than George H.W. Bush. I don't know why. Hmm. It's just because maybe he looms a little bit larger, two terms. I don't know. Nobody really talks about H.W. as being Oh, like, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is, what is, the, what is H.W.'s legacy other than the George Gulf War d- w, George but, W. Bush, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And being a fucking CIA scumbag. Uh-huh. Insane, after reading this, that uh, the like guy in charge of the CIA went on to become president. That's like, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> hmm. no and the CIA's man in the Senate went on to become head of the CIA, then went back <laughs> to become president again. Yeah. <laughs> And then another uh, former president, a guy who was on the uh, Warren Commission. We'll get to that. Um, when was HW in charge of the CIA then? It must have been in the 70s, right? Before he became vice president in 80. Yes, 80, it must have been, yeah. I think it was only for like a year or something. Oh, right, okay. Um, <laughs> I think they were like, we have different uh-huh. plans uh-huh. for you. I bet, I bet he still gets the CIA briefing. <laughs> oh, of course. Is he alive still? He died recently. No, he died. He, died he recently. decomposed on camera. <laughs> Um, well, I can think of some people who are decomposing on camera that's still alive. <laughs> yeah, true. I watched a David Attenborough thing recently. Speaking of that, um, great. I wasn't guy. thinking of David Attenborough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I was th- thinking Earth. of our good friend um, Henry Kissinger. That is like an affront to God that he is still alive. <laughs> that's like so, talk about people from a different era. I mean, my man, and also, uh, oh no, I almost said. Um, the guy that we killed. Oh, yeah, Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld. I almost said Rumsfeld. Yeah, we also, Rumsfeld was, was, like, was a different era, but actually, there's a point yeah. in this where he seeks out Dulles and they meet, don't they? Yeah. The early 60s, uh, man, when wonder, he was a congressman or something. Yeah, I wonder, man, the power dynamics, alternate history, if Dulles survived longer between like Cheney and Rumsfeld would have been nuts. And Bush. Although, I guess he liked Bush to a certain extent because he liked his dad. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about something more sane. Let's talk about the first failed assassination attempt of John F. Kennedy. Okay. <laughs> um, so this book brings up the point that uh, on November 2nd, 1963, our good friend John F. Kennedy was going to... Chicago? Yeah, he was in Chicago. What Was it for like a soccer game or something? Or like he was on his way to some sporting event or some crap or he's coming back from it. Who cares? And um, Unless it's baseball. That's it's baseball. It could have been baseball, actually. Oh, my God, dude. The MLB just did that. Have you ever seen Field of Dreams? There's no way you've seen uh, it. It's Kurt Russell. Kurt Duke. It's, uh, no, it's the it's, uh, the guy who looks just like him. He's white. Same thing. Uh-huh. Is, it, is it the guy that played the 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 district attorney in Oliver Stone's? Haven't seen it, but oh, Kevin Costner. It's it was Kevin, Kevin Costner. Costner. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Field of Dreams is often on Netflix. I like sports movies. Yeah, I really sure. like sports movies. Oh, and it's, I, it's, it's one that I intend to watch. It yeah. comes on enough of Netflix, and I haven't got around to watching it yet. Yeah. Were you were you going to advocate for my watching Field of Dreams? I or was not? just going to say the MLB just did this thing to like. <laughs> To market only to like old white boomers where they like have the baseball field from that show. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Made up in real life and it's in a cornfield and uh, the Yankees and the White Sox just played there last night to date when we're recording this episode. 
and I was, and, oh, it was so cringy because like Kevin Costner gave a speech and there's a famous scene in the movie where like all of these dead guys come out of the cornfield and they're baseball players. And they did that with the actual baseball players. And it was really cringe. <laughs> and it was really lame. But dude, I got to say, it was one of the best baseball games of like all time. The White okay. Sox walked it off. My man, Tim Anderson, Eloy, no buttons, Jimenez, my other man. It rocked. <laughs> it was so cool. Dude. And the Yankees lost. So everybody wins. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, why do why do I Good, well, congrats to the congrats to the who was it the White Sox White Sox Chicago White Sox they're my AL team man they're oh not. okay Chicago White Sox we're in Chicago we're Kennedy, in, that's right Kennedy's yeah. definitely coming from a baseball team baseball <laughs> game or going to a baseball game and nothing something. bad's gonna happen no, at all no 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 because the Secret Service happens to be on their game this time exactly well I mean basically just a plot gets uncovered that. While Kennedy was supposed to be in his car, there were snipers who were all arrested in buildings um, mm. who were going to basically just light him up and mm. shoot him. As he slowed, as the car slowed for a band. Turn. Get him around yeah. the band. And I mean, there's not much to this other than that the guy who was definitely involved, this guy named Paulino Sierra Martinez, surprise, surprise, a like uh, anti-Castro uh, Cuban, was basically later linked to getting all of this money for anti-Castro uh, uh, Cuban activities. Um, from among others, he got 30 million bucks, which seems like, guys, don't you, what are you giving him 30 million bucks for? Just give him like a couple grand, buy some guns. That's all you need. Um, he got this money from, uh, United Fruit, U.S. Steel, DuPont, Standard Oil, all these people. And basically is like some people, the law enforcement agencies started tracking him and they're like, what's this guy actually up to? We know that he's probably like an asset of the CIA, but like, just keep an eye on him. And because they did, they, like, realized that part of what he was doing was, like, setting up this big group of Cuban marksmen to blip uh, Kennedy. And it failed because the plot was uncovered. But um, I'll say, Dan, you don't learn about this in uh, American history uh-huh, classes. Uh-huh, uh-huh, no. And what, when was this? This was the 2nd of November, November 63. Yes. I don't know what anything else happened in November 63. <laughs> yeah, what happened 20 days later? Yeah. I don't know. Something exactly like this, but that was succeeded? Weird. <laughs> It had escaped my attention that the funding for this plot came from all of those yeah. American right. corporations. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, this, I'll just read this. The Chicago Office of the Secret Service suspected Sierra was a more sinister figure than the FBI. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, by November 63, Chicago, like Miami, New Orleans, and Dallas, had become a nest of anti-Kennedy intrigue. On November 2nd, local Secret Service officials foiled a well-organized assassination plot against Kennedy. After landing at Chicago O'Hare's airport that day, Kennedy was scheduled to ride in a motorcade to Soldier Field to watch the annual Army-Navy football game. Who gives a fuck? But the motorcade was canceled after the Secret Service exposed a plot exposed a plot to ambush the president from a tall warehouse building as his limousine slowed for a hairpin turn. The plot, which involved a sniper team composed of a disgruntled ex-Marine, boy, don't get near those guys, who worked in the building. They're all disgruntled. Yeah, exactly. That guy, who a disgruntled ex-Marine who worked in the building. That's like, we know, yeah, we'll yeah, come yeah, across yeah, yeah. another disgruntled ex-Marine who worked in a warehouse very soon. And at least two Cuban marksmen bore a disturbing resemblance to the series of events that became Kennedy's life 20 days later in Dallas. Um, insane. Yeah. That's just, that's just insane. I don't know. That's basically, I don't have anything else to say about it other than that. And other than it's just absolutely batshit, but like, oh, they didn't get him then. So they got him 20 days later. Mm-hmm. Um... Oh boy. Okay, and now now we go- oh, Jesus Christ. Now we got <laughs> Now we get onto the good stuff. Now we get onto the good stuff, but we kind of have to backtrack a little bit cuz we got to talk about a series of people. We got to talk about Bill Harvey, got to talk about Howard Hunt, we got to talk about 
our poor, beautiful Oswald. Uh-huh. So to take the fattest first, <laughs> uh, we'll talk about a guy named Bill Harvey, mm. who uh, this will be interesting to kind of open up a discussion about like class within these these uh, organizations. But Bill Harvey was like, he got to start, I think, as what Talbot calls as being like a red hunter in the FBI. So here's one of these guys who go wiretap phones and beat the shit out of communists and labor organizers, right, during the McCarthy era. He was kind of like a hard-drinking, like, you know, big, fat guy who liked a good time. Um, pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you learn about Kim Philby much in the British school system, but he was the one who found out that Kim Philby was working for the for MI6, was a um, Soviet spy. Yeah, now we came across this at certain points in this book. I don't know whether we mm-hmm. ever talked about it. That was a really fascinating story that, like... Yeah. How high Kim Philby got and how well trusted he was, even by Dulles, I think, and then was revealed to be like a Soviet spy kind of thing. Yeah. And there was reference made to like, yeah, it was him that sniffed him out kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because it, the reason that he like sniffed him out or whatever was because it seemed like because they had very opposite personalities and he was just like, I'm going to get some dirt on this guy. Like Kim Philby was like an intellectual, like you know, corduroy jacket, elbow pad wearing guy who liked a good cocktail. Mm-hmm. and Just like everybody else in this <laughs> yeah, CIA exactly. world. And Harvey was just like this fat whiskey drinking, like... Yeah, well, they called him the cop, didn't the they? The cop, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so he was, you know, supposedly had a confrontation with Philby and then was like, I'm going to dig up some dirt. And then he was like, oh my God, this guy's a Soviet spy. So that really made his name and that made people who, like he was not an Ivy League guy. Like I think he went to like, Indiana State or one like some state university in the Midwest, mm-hmm. um, that kind of got the CIA's eye on him, and he was eventually sent um, to go work with our old friend from a previous uh, part of this series, Reinhard Galen, ex-Nazi, ex-Nazi, Nazi, <laughs> post World War II, who was part of the like. This book calls him Stay Behind Networks as part of the like West German like CIA backed like, the Nazis are still around killing communists kind of organization. Um, that's who Bill Harvey worked with in Germany. Supposedly, he really liked Germany, which I thought was very funny. Mm-hmm. Because he would not he like despised it, Italy, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. Um, so then, after that, I guess he goes back to America and he starts working on a project called ZR Rifle, which was. Um, well, that was the. Is that not the name of the? Because because all of the sort of like, all of the station, all the CIA stations have these really crazy names. So like the wasn't the Miami CIA station called. It CR might have been. I thought, I thought that was Jam Wave. And then I think ZR Rifle was the broader project. I could be wrong about okay, that. Okay, no. But I, I defer to your greater wisdom, <laughs> for sure. Um, but because, was... there was, because there are both operations, stations, and yeah. people that yeah. have these very similar... And agents like and assets. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, basically, he was just there organizing the connections between the underworld and the CIA to go and just do these uh, raids on Cuba. Yeah, um, yeah. There was in this period of time, like the Miami CIA station was like the biggest, most staffed, most yeah. well-funded yeah. one in like the whole world, kind yeah. of thing. Basically, because like it was on a college campus too. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, which is just like, and it was ostensibly Jam Wave. It was ostensibly a radio station for the <laughs> university, and it had a budget of like several million dollars. And everyone's like, "Who's paying for this? <laughs> what are they using these broadcasts for?" It's like the chicken is in the hen house. <laughs> <laughs> um and then i guess i guess like what happened what happens that he well first of all we should say that he organized the raids that were going on during the cuban missile crisis which is batch yeah 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 and basically he just continues doing it and he continues (laughs) trying to kill kill castro yeah and eventually bobby kennedy's like 
Fucking hell, mate, you, you've got to stop doing this. <laughs> yeah, We've told you. <laughs> stop, <laughs> please. So I can't remember the exact details, but he falls foul of Bobby Kennedy. Mm. And I think Bobby Kennedy is really out to, like, get rid of him. Yeah. By which I mean, like, sack him, presumably, not, yeah. like, do him in. Not take him out. Not take him out. <laughs> totally different language. <laughs> Nobody's ever confused those two. Um, so the CIA hurriedly, like... Uh, packs him up and sends him off to Italy to have him be yeah. like head of the Rome station for the CIA, even though he like doesn't speak any Italian and basically <laughs> and, like, like, despises Rome. <laughs> and, 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 and he and his wife are there for like two years or something, and then reveal themselves to be like I don't know American Philistines, Philistines basically. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, we should say too that like that was him getting sent to Italy was seen as a downgrade, mm-hmm. but what the CIA was doing there and go look this up because this is a much bigger history. It was like um, organizing again these stay behind networks to basically just kill communists. Yeah, yeah. And to yeah. like even socialists and progressives. And um, one thing I found very funny was him and his hard drinking wife. They said that uh, at their house, communists used to throw live rats into their yard and they, they'd have to chase the rats out. Of the stairs. <laughs> I thought that was very funny. Yeah, I can, I can see him now, Harvey the cop running around with his revolver trying <laughs> yeah. to like shoot at these communist rats. Pulling his pants up. Yeah. <laughs> Goddamn communists and their rats. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, we should also say he worked with Johnny Roselli and said that that was like one of the only, if you get the feeling that was one of the only Italians that he actually liked, which was very funny. This was yeah. when he was in America. Yeah. Um, what, what, yeah. One of his great contributions to this sort of world of espionage was his connection to the mob kind of thing, yeah. which basically came from his history in the, um, FBI, no, in, yeah, in the FBI kind of thing. Yeah. And, it's and what he brought to this world of, um, anti-Castro CIA sort of mob triumvirate yeah. <laughs> um, which became so pivotal in the, the preceding years yeah. Defense. yeah no absolutely and it's interesting because like you do get a glimpse into like the class structure of these organizations because like as big of a deal as he was excuse me they make the point that like Bill Harvey was never invited to cookouts he was never invited to anything with like the upper echelon Princeton guys and he never would have gotten a promotion to be like one of the big wig mm-hmm. CIA guys and that's because like he went that... to the wrong university <laughs> exactly he went to the wrong university he was pretty he was Irish too but like also it, it I don't know it kind of goes both ways because like the big wig CIA guys the Angletons and the Dulleses like they would never meet with like Johnny Roselli and the other you know like mafia guys and be like hey kill this person for me please they would leave that to like these basically just like ex-cop like FBI guys so it's, it, I found that really interesting of like you know where Dulles was the connection between like the bourgeoisie and the government and their mutual interests in the military establishment Guys like Harvey were the connection between, you know, guys like Dulles and the CIA to, like, the underworld. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was really yeah, interesting yeah, yeah. parallels. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that, that there are these, like, the, like Nexel persons that connect all these different worlds together kind of yeah. thing. And we did come across this sort of, like, outsourcing of these more murderous, nefarious acts, particularly the ones that needed to be committed in American soil. Yeah. Uh, when we were talking, and I don't know whether we talked about it explicitly in the last episode, but there was this instance of a... Um, I think it was a Spanish academic, wasn't he? But he oh, defended yeah. somebody in South America. I can't remember which it country was it was. Republic. So he, defend, he defended the dictator in the Dominican Republic. And basically, the CIA decided they were going to ship him back to the Dominican Republic, where he was eventually fed to crocodiles. <laughs> I um, it was sharks. Sharks. <laughs> I it was crocodiles. Sharks. It would make sense if it was sharks. We shouldn't make light of this. Really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, 
And rather than the CIA do it themselves, the CIA sort of farmed it out to the FBI, who then farmed it out to the mobsters, and like so it was it, this other back channel basically um, of of this this uh, dark and dastardly world. Yeah, and it's it's funny how they it, like it is such a bullshit class thing where they're like, oh, I went to Princeton, I would never speak with this Irish policeman. It's just like, oh my god, such crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And later, yeah that, I mean, that almost becomes quite central to. Talbot's speculations later yeah. on is like who is actually possibly connected to whom, who could legitimately fall into what circles predicated on their mm. sort of like uh, class um, identity or the, yeah. sort of ma- the material circumstances of their lives. Yeah, no, it makes it makes total sense. And I mean, like if you were to be an independent researcher, mm. look into these things. I don't know. It makes sense to look at like the the Nexel people right the like personalities that are because it it does seem insane to be like wait a minute you're telling me that like alan dulles met with like anti-castro cubans and the mob and like all of these people and oss oas guys to like then kill kennedy it's like it doesn't make any sense but it's like you know need to know basis baby Mm -hmm. um so yeah and who are the people you need to know (laughs) exactly Mm. um okay so that's well i suppose we should also say that bill harvey the reason we're bringing this up is because he was this this nexus point to the underworld and when he came back to america at one point he was in dallas in 1963 <laughs> what, and, was he? Yeah, and yeah he he ran in to um one of his former colleagues at the airport the former colleague was like hey man what are you doing here and he was just like fuck off I don't <laughs> yeah. talk to aren't you. you supposed to be in italy what are you doing <laughs> yeah. in dallas <laughs> so i'm not doing anything in dallas um Another instance of somebody mysteriously deciding to go to Dallas because yeah. apparently everybody went to Dallas <laughs> in November of 83. It's a tourist. I mean, now I would like to go to Dallas and go to Dealey Plaza. Yeah, That's all I'm going to say. It'd be why cool. Um, Stand on the grassy knoll. Oh, man, that would be cool. That'd be sick. Stand in the book depository and be like, could I make the shot from here? <laughs> we could get onto this, but do you remember, do you remember the, there's no relevance to putting on to, coming onto this, so we'll talk about it now. You know the guy who owned the book depository oh removed the window? I know. That Oswald ostensibly shot through and then uh, uh, on the grounds that if he didn't remove it, souvenir hunters would? would come and take it, but Someone then would take he a hung window? it on the wall in his house. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's yeah. insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, that's not suspicious at all. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's Bill Harvey, and he'll come up again when we talk about Howard Hunt. Howard Hunt, exactly. Our man, Howard Hunt. Dear listener, if you know anything about American politics uh, surrounding Nixon, you will have recognized Howard Hunt's you name. You will have come across something called Watergate. Watergate, exactly. And um, two specifically of these people who broke into the Democratic Party headquarters in the Watergate Hotel um, were H. Howard Hunt and Frank Sturgis. And we're going to talk about H. Howard Hunt. <laughs> the mo- Okay, I actually just have to read this bit from the book because yeah, this so is good. so insane. So I don't know what he's going to read, but it's all great. So. <laughs> it was on this page. Where was it? music you heard this episode was music to kill bad people too by king gizzard and the lizard wizard if you like this song you can check it out and much much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com be sure and follow us up on instagram twitter and facebook and if you like what you heard be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion till next time